This is part five of the Boudicca series. If you want to know how we got to where we are today, make sure you listen to the previous episodes as they flow in chronological order. Right now, we are lined up for the epic battle between Boudicca and the forces of the Romans. But we're going to go into more than that in this episode. We're also going to go into the aftermath of the battle. What happened to the main characters that we have been speaking about for the last few episodes? And how did this Boudicca character become such a legend? Hello, and welcome to the Spark History Show, where we bring history to light. Take a dive with us into history and hear the real accounts of the stories of the past as they actually unfolded. Explore with us as we shine some light on the amazing events that shaped our world into what we have today. We are going to recreate the stories of the past to better understand the struggles and triumphs during the most epic moments in history. This is the Spark History Show. Let us begin the journey. Remember where we left off in the last episode? The Britons had been traveling along Watling Street to come into contact with the Romans, but they didn't want to go through a heavily wooded area where they would most likely be ambushed. So they decided to follow a river around the woods that was on Watling Street. As they were moving along, they ended up running across a valley. And at the end of the valley was the Roman forces set up and prepared because they knew Boudicca and her troops would most likely take this route. The battle was about to unfold. On the left, we have Gaius Suetonius Paulinus and his Roman soldiers. On the right, we have Boudicca and her free warriors of Britain. Let the battle begin! The war horns bellowed, and the entire mass of over 100,000 warriors let out a battle cry at the top of their lungs as they charged forward to meet the Romans. As the Britons drew closer, the Romans prepared themselves for their attack, making last-minute adjustments to their formations and bracing themselves for the gauntlet that they would have to make it through to survive. Paulinus was behind his troops atop his horse, surveying the battlefield. From his vantage point, he could clearly see the entire battle area. He watches as the Britons grew closer from 500 yards away. A ball of angry, snarling warriors out for blood. Closer they came, and their chants and yelling growing louder and louder. Now, under 300 yards, the Britons would soon crash into the Roman lines. 100 yards. 50 yards. The Britons now started sprinting toward the Romans. Paulinus arched up in his saddle and shouted the order to let loose the Pila. Each Roman legionnaire, in unison, threw his mighty javelin at the horde of barbarians charging towards them. Around 7,000 Pila, which is the plural form of Pilum, sailed through the air. Some of the Britons slowed their pace and put their arms up to shield themselves from the incoming fire. 
Those with shields raise them to the sky to protect themselves from the hail of 3.2 feet in length pila with piercing point projectiles. Thwack! Thwack! Thud! The pilums crashed down on the Britons. Some thudded into the ground or slammed into the shields of the Britons, and others smacked into human flesh. The warriors that were hit by the javelins fell to the ground in agony. Blood started to sprout from the wound, and if they tried to pull out the heavy javelin, even more blood would begin spurting out as the barbed head of the javelin caused an even larger wound as it was pulled out against the barbs. They would most likely soon bleed out. The Britons with shields were luckier. The Pelums broke through their shield, but did not make it to their body, and they were left unscathed. The only problem was that the head of the javelin bent as it entered the shield, just as it was designed to do with the soft iron shank that the Romans had come up with. The shield either had to be thrown down to the side, or the warrior could have to try and run along with a javelin several feet long dragging along beside him, weighing down his shield, making it useless to deflect any enemy melee attacks. As the shields were dropped and the injured soldiers fell to the ground, more Britons from behind them filled in their space and continued the charge toward the Roman line. Again, Paulinus gave the command for his men to launch their last pila against the enemy. Another stream of the pila went flying into the enemy lines. The Romans then drew their gladius short swords and started to move forward to engage the Britons in brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat. But what was different now was that they altered their stance to a wedge formation as they advanced. The first thought of a wedge formation might bring to mind a V-shape like when you see a formation of geese flying in the air, or jet fighters that are set up in a V formation. The difference with the Roman wedge formation was that there was not just one V-shaped wedge as you would see in, say, a medieval cavalry charge, but there were actually many wedges across the entire battle line. The line of Romans was now similar to a long serrated blade. There were parts that stuck out towards the enemy that were in the shape of a V with the point facing the enemy. And then there would be a space like a valley in between that wedge and the next V-shaped wedge along the line. The enemy would be faced with this wedge formation of large, strong shields effectively creating a wall in front of them. The idea was that the enemy troops would be funneled into the space between the wedges and then the poor chaps boxed in there could be hacked to pieces on all sides. Yikes. The Britons had just recovered from the hail of Pila and looked up to see the Roman units now moving towards them in unison and in formation. The Britons quickly regained their composure and then charged into the Roman battle line as the two sides met in an epic clash of clans. Human bodies and shields smacked together as the full weight of the mass of armies ran into each other across the battle line. 
Britons traditionally fought much differently than what they were experiencing in the battle here today. Many of the warriors were armed with spears and long swords, which were weapons that were great for a one-on-one -on -one fight with individual men from an imposing force. What they were not accustomed to is what had been presented to them with the Roman style of heavy infantry combat, which is close in together and moving in formation with a cohesive unit. The Romans cut gouges into the line of Britons as they charged their wall of shields into the mob of Britons before them. But the force of 100,000 enemy warriors pushing against your front line and shield wall must have been intense. The Romans had to strain all their muscles to maintain their position with the force of human bodies piling into them, slashing and stabbing, trying to catch a piece of Roman flesh. But the Roman line did not break. They were able to stand their ground after the initial clash. The Roman shields and weight of their armor, along with the several men deep infantry line, helped them to maintain their position. The Britons, in their frenzy, had crashed into the Romans, swinging their weapons wildly and violently, but they couldn't get through the wall of shields. Some tried to jump over the shields to get at the men behind them, but were met by a gladius thrust up into their midsection. Others tried to push through with their comrades in choke points, but even if they pushed through a small opening, the Roman shield wall closed behind them and they were stabbed from multiple angles from the Roman rear lines. This is what the Romans had been waiting for. Once they stabilized their line, they began to chant in unison with their trained tactic of quickly slamming forward on command and jam their wedges further into the enemy line and throw them off balance. Once this was achieved, they would strike the unsettled foe with their gladius, and they would do this along their entire line. The Britons that got pushed into the valley of the Roman wedges were easy targets for this Roman tactic bundled together that they were so close their shoulders were touching, the Britons were not able to effectively use their weapons. The mass of human bodies and metal in the Roman formation pushed them into this unfavorable position. How do you point a long spear down where you can thrust it forward when everyone was knocked together, some on the ground, and the rest so close they couldn't turn their shoulder to even push a spear forward. The long swords of the Britons also had issues with this predicament. There was not enough room to go for a swing, you know, like they are swinging a baseball bat to hit their enemy. The Romans, on the other hand, had the gladius, which was perfectly designed for this type of fighting. With a push of the shields to knock the enemy line off balance, the gladius would then come up from the side, waist level of a shield, and thrust into the Briton's stomach. This angle was perfect for the short sword. The blade would enter the gut without getting stopped or caught on bone, and then would be driven up under the ribcage and to the heart. A fatal blow.
The Britons were smashing against the enemy shields and trying to hit the Roman helmets over the shields or find a gap in the shields to attack. But it was hard for them to break through to do any real damage. The Romans continued their formation and chanting as they slowly moved forward into the enemy line. The Britons that were stabbed fell to the ground and were stepped over by the shield wall. The men in the next line of Romans would then finish off any one of them still grasping for breath as they were on the ground, quickly stabbing them as their line moved forward and they stepped over the fallen bodies of the enemy. You would think that the sheer weight of the thousands of Britons would be able to push through the Roman line, and at first it looked like this may be the case. But the Romans had been ready for this exact type of fight, and their weapons and shields, along with the men supporting them from behind the first line, added to their weight to hold back the force of Britons. The Romans also had an interesting benefit from their footwear. The military used leather sandals or boots that had special metal hobnails on the bottom. When people today are playing soccer, baseball, or football, they all wear some form of cleats as their footwear. Having jagged edges on the bottom of the cleats allows sports players to dig into the dirt or grass when they run, giving them more traction and power. It can help you run faster or can help you brace your body, such as the case of football linemen who are using all their strength to try and push away the man in front of them. The Romans benefited just as our athletes do today from wearing the best footgear. The metal studs on their feet would dig into the ground as the enemy slammed into their shields. This added grip enabled them to hold back the full force of an enemy charge or to push forward against an enemy with their shields as they would dig into the ground rather than have their feet slide backwards from the tremendous force. In the battle against Boudicca's army, it helped them to gain yet another small advantage in the fight against a superior force. The Britons sent wave after wave charging into the Roman lines, but the tactic did not seem to be working. The problem for the Britons was that charging into the enemy line was really the only tactic that they had. The numerous tribes and chieftains had never trained together in the use of formations, and they were used to fighting combat on an individual level. Even when in a battle with many warriors on each side, they would pick out an enemy and engage in a one-on-one -on -one fight with them. Some historians also suggest that the Romans had a way of rotating their front line in battle and replacing the men from the line behind them. If a Roman line was six to eight men deep, that meant that the front line could continually be relieved with a refreshed soldier and those tired from the front line could be given an opportunity to take a breather. Pushing, fighting, and stabbing on the front line would have been completely exhausting in battle under all your armor and battle gear. The Romans, by potentially rotating their front line every 10 minutes or so, could slowly grind down the enemy in front of them. As the wave after wave of Britons were slashed down without penetrating the Roman line, panic 
started to set in. The Roman wedge continued to slowly move forward and gain ground on the Britons. Suetonius, from his vantage point behind the Roman lines higher up on the hill, was able to watch the battle as it unfolded. Once the legions had started to push back the Britons, he sent word for his cavalry, which were positioned on the flanks of the legions, to push in on the enemy lines in a pincer movement. This became easier as the valley grew wider from where the trees were on the sides of the forces towards the more open field in front of them as the Romans continued to push the Britons back. The Britons that were behind the front line started to feel fear building up inside of them. They could see wave after wave of their fellow warriors being cut down by a seemingly impenetrable wall of metal in the form of the Roman line's shield wall. On top of that, Roman cavalry started to cut into their flanks and push towards making their way behind the mass of Britons. If they stayed in their current spot, the cavalry might push behind them and then they would be stuck in a circle of death between the Roman infantry in the front and cavalry to the back. There would be no escape. That was the moment when some of the Britons decided their best chance of survival was to flee. Those with the weakest stomach turned tail and started to sprint back toward their camp away from the battle. But once some of the warriors broke, the idea of retreating turned into a cascade that enveloped the rear of the line of Britons. The rear ranks turned and sprinted away from the battle for safety. And then, more and more of the Britons, seeing that their backup was abandoning them, also decided to turn and run. As the Britons tried to flee the battle, they ran into a huge problem. The carts, supplies, and trophies of war that their families had moved in a semicircle behind their battlefront now acted as a dam that held them back from fleeing the field. Running into the wall of carts, the Britons had to slowly try and clamber over the carts and piles of supplies to make it to safety on the other side. As the Britons' front lines had been weakened by the retreating men, the Roman legions now pushed forward at a much more frantic pace. The cavalry which had engaged the Britons was now able to charge through the side and back of their lines and mow down Britons that were facing the other way running instead of having to engage them face to face in a fight. The families that had set up their carts and supplies to form this arena where they could watch the battle were now the cause of so many of their fellow countrymen being cut down as the troops couldn't escape the bottleneck caused by the carts. In the panic to get out as fast as they could, the carts were mostly left behind in a wall around the area. What happened in this battle reminds me of a battle scene from the Game of Thrones HBO series. When Jon Snow is fighting Ramsay Bolton's army, his troops get wedged in between a phalanx of spearmen with large shields and a pile of bodies behind them at their back. If you want to see how brutal this type of situation can get, that scene gives a pretty graphic representation of it, with crowded troops being smothered together as they try to find a way out of the trap. 
When the Romans were fighting the Britons, they were so close to them in their formation that they could feel the air from the last breath of the enemy that they had just stabbed as he then fell to the ground in front of them. Once the Britons broke and started to flee, it turned into a massacre. The Romans continued their pursuit relentlessly, untiring, unwavering, and just as they had been trained to do, continue pushing into the enemy. Trapped in by their own doing with their carts, being cornered into a tighter and tighter mob of bodies, scrambling to get over the carts while legions cut away behind them and cavalry pushed in on their sides, the fight was over. In this epic battle for Britain, the Romans had defeated Boudicca and her army. The battle would have long-standing consequences for the future of what we know in modern terms today as the United Kingdom of Great Britain. The Britons' chance to wipe out the last major Roman army in their territory and kick the Romans off their island had failed. Scattered remnants of Boudicca's army escaped into the countryside, but the slaughter had been immense. There was no longer an effective fighting force in the rebellion. The battle became known as the defeat of Boudicca or the Battle of Watling Street, which was the Roman road that had been near the battle site. Dio doesn't reference the count of dead Britons, but states it was many. Tacitus, on the other hand, gives us more insight in that he provides a number of 80,000 dead Britons in this battle, while listing only 400 Roman casualties. Again, there is more than likely an exaggeration of the numbers in this account from a Roman historian, but historians of today estimate the number at closer to 40,000 dead Britons and 1,000 dead Romans. It might be hard to comprehend the number of people that died in this battle and the actual scale of the event that took place here when we just say it as a large number. 40,000 Britons and 1,000 Romans. To give some context, in the USA Today, according to government census data, the average American lives in a town of around only 20,000 people. Only 3.9% of the U.S. population lives in a city or town with populations of 50,000 or more. Imagine an entire town of people lying dead on this battlefield. Imagine how many families would be decimated. All the people of an average American town wiped out in a single day in a single battle. The population of all of Britain at this time was most likely between 1,500,000 and 1,700,000. We know that the Doomsday Book that was chartered by English King William I in 1085 AD meant that a tentative estimate of the population in 1086 AD was under 2 million. It is difficult to estimate the population under Roman Britain, although some say it may have been higher than it was at the time of King William, going as high as 3 to 4 million individuals. Those numbers could be possible, as there was a period of turmoil before William took the throne, and the Doomsday Book also omitted some cities and only listed head of households from which the rest of the population would have to be estimated. 
If we took the initial count from Tacitus of 80,000 dead Britons as fact, it would mean that this battle would have the single highest death count of any battle up until World War I, where the new invention of the machine gun could lay waste to thousands upon thousands of lives in a single day. If the number was between 40,000 and 80,000, that is still devastating to the entire civilization of Britain. In World War II, the atomic bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki had a death toll of around 75,000 people when it struck, and that was on a city with a major metropolitan area. Paulinus and his Roman army effectively dropped an atomic bomb's worth of devastation on the people of Britannia, wiping out a huge part of its population and fighting force in one fell swoop. This was exactly the win that the Romans needed after suffering the earlier defeats, losing around 3,000 soldiers and having three of their cities razed. There were really only 10 or so major cities in Britain in this time period, and the ones that were targeted were the ones that had the closest ties to Rome. But through all of this, what happened to Boudicca? Did she die in a blaze of glory, like in the movie 300 when King Leonidas fought to the bitter end until he received a warrior's death? Did she instead battle her way through and survive to fight another day? The records that we have are a little hazy on what exactly happened to Boudicca. Most stories point to Boudicca surviving the battle against Paulinus and heading back to her homeland. Tacitus indicates that she survives the battle, but then states she later takes poison, which leads to her own death. Dio indicates that she later fell ill after returning to her hometown and then passed away. There is no archaeological evidence to tell us what really happened, but it is expected that if she didn't die in battle, she went back to her homeland to maybe say her final goodbyes and then ended her life. Her two daughters were expected to have been killed in battle. Boudicca, knowing that her rebellion had been stamped out and her two daughters and husband killed by the enemy, would not have had many options for a continued life. She certainly would not have wanted to be captured by the Romans, who would have continually hunted her, and if they caught her, she would have most likely been tortured in the most gruesome fashion. Remember, these Romans were the ones that had crucified people for a slow and agonizing death when they went against the will of Rome. After the battle, the Roman soldiers did have to maintain a ready status as they camped out the winter in tents and continued to quash a few last pockets of resistance. Instead of flat out being able to fall back and rest, after the campaign that ended in the battle and Boudicca's defeat. Normally, troops would not have to camp out in the light shelter of tents for the course of the winter, but we can see here that the situation was still tenuous. Once the last few pockets of enemies were mopped up, Britain was once again firmly under the control of the Romans. In the end, the Romans would continue to rule over this land for the next 350 years. Think about that for a moment. 350 years. 
That is over a hundred years longer than the United States has even been in existence. One Roman that did not have it turn out so well for himself was the prefect commander of the Second Legion that was stationed in southern Wales, Ponius Postumus. Remember how he said his decision to not send additional troops to Paulinus to help fight Boudicca would turn out not so great for him in the end? Well, this is where Ponius' choices came to haunt him. Upon hearing the news that Paulinus had decisively won the battle against the Britons, Ponius decided to end his life by falling upon his sword. Some say that this was because he realized he had deprived his men of all the glory of the great battle, but it also may have had to do with him now having to face up to Roman military policies for insubordination and defying a direct order from his superior to send assistance. Ponius pretty much left Paulinus and his troops in the wind by not sending any support when they were most desperate for additional men. The Roman soldiers unleashed devastation on the tribes that had supported Boudicca during the rebellion, setting fire to their houses and farms, destroying food, and putting some villagers to death. There were only two tribes that had remained faithful client states under the Romans during the rebellion, the Kagji Dubnis and the Cardamandua. These tribes were the sole Britons that would be unscathed by Roman retribution. The leaders of these two tribes had been paid off by the Romans, and since they had sided with what ended up being the winning side, they ended up being the best off after the Battle of Boudicca, retaining their lands and not having their people exploited. If these two tribes had sided with Boudicca, she may have had enough warriors and resources to have defeated Paulinus and continue her campaign. Imagine if France never sided with America in the Revolutionary War. If we never had the trade goods and military support from France, would the United States still exist as it does today? Remember, France had assisted to the point where in the final battle of Cornwallis' surrender at Yorktown, there were about as many French troops in support as American, and the French naval blockade is what cut off any type of rescue for the British troops. If Boudicca had support from those other tribes, who knows how that could have changed not only the history of Britain, but also of the Roman Empire for that time period. Interesting to think about how a few big decisions taken by powerful individuals can have massive effects on how the world is shaped for hundreds of years. Since the rebellion started with the Iceni and Trinovantes, they felt the hardest force from the Roman fist of retribution. Many of those that survived were sold into Roman slavery and sent to other parts of the empire to live out the rest of their lives in servitude to a Roman master. The royal families of the tribes were destroyed and their property seized. The Romans then built a series of forts to protect their might along the area known as East Anglia, the location of the now devastated Iceni tribe. A religious site of the Essene and the location of Thetford 
was found to be carefully dismantled, seemingly by the Romans around the time of Boudicca's defeat. This could have been an important site where Boudicca had first made her case to the Druids and set up her war council. It is expected that the Romans, instead of just burning the place, actually went through systematically and took apart every piece of the religious site so that it could no longer function as a symbol of the religion of the Druids. The posts creating structures were removed and the space where they had been was even filled in. The ditches in the area had earth brought in to fill them in as well. The lasting effect was that the site was abandoned by the locals for the next 200 years. One of the strategies the people of Britain used was to bury valuables in a hole in the ground in what they called a hoard. The area would be covered over and no one would know the location except for those that buried it. Then, when a time of trouble passed by, they returned back to the spot when everything was safe and they could dig up their valuables. Due to the very large number of these that were found over the years at archaeological sites in Britain, we get the impression that not many of the locals were able to ever go back and recoup the valuables, having either been killed or taken away, and the knowledge of the hoard location vanishing along with them. The number of hordes during the specific time period after Boudicca's defeat shows that many of the ex-combatants tried to hide their looted treasures and then tried to ride out the storm of Roman reprisal. After the rough fighting and near loss of the territory of Britain, the Roman military assigned reinforcements from Roman-controlled Germania to Britain to shore up the defense of the province. Although the Roman historians gloss over the potentially high number of Roman casualties, the sheer amount of reinforcements that were sent to Britain shows how dire the situation had been during Boudicca's revolt. Boudicca really did have the potential to free her lands from Roman occupation during her campaign. 2,000 legionnaires, 8 cohorts of auxiliaries, and 1,000 cavalry were dispatched. That is a total of around 7,000 troops coming to try and reinforce Britain. The Romans definitely did not want to see their territory lost. It's not like these troops were just lying around waiting. They were dealing with fighting and uprisings in the area of Germania, and yet the higher-ups thought it was more important to pull them away and reinforce Britain. Martial law was then imposed in Britain by the Roman military. Back when we were discussing how Boudicca's army traveled with all of their family in tow, we also discussed how there was a great risk with this march on the Romans, as no one was left back home to plant and harvest crops to sustain the population. There was also evidence that there already may have been a food shortage in Britain at the time before the rebellion. This probably helped enrage the populace further as they still had to pay taxes and grain to the Roman tax collectors when their own people were struggling to obtain enough food to survive. After all of this fighting in the rebellion, dwindling supplies, and lack of new harvests, a food shortage turned into an outright famine now that the rebellion had been thwarted. 
Beyond dealing with the reprisal from the Romans, their surviving Britons now had to face the threat of starvation. When looking into some of the alternatives, such as being taken into slavery or starvation, maybe the ones that died in the Battle of Watling Street didn't have the worst of it? The Romans were left trying to ensure that no rebellion could occur again in the province and were focused on tightening their rule for the next decade or so. After the 60-61 to 61 AD rebellion, it took the Romans until the year 71 AD to start a new military campaign to obtain additional territory from the island of Britain, and they traveled north to where Hadrian's Wall would end up being. The Boudicca Rebellion had an effect that would last for over a decade. The Roman governor and general Suetonius Paulinus used his distinguished strategic thinking to overcome Boudicca and her army during the rebellion. After the war, with the violent ordeal he and his men had just been through, he decided to run the territory with an iron fist. He was a hair away from losing control of Britain and wasn't about to let the circumstances brew that would enable another possible revolt. For the emperor at the time, Nero, and the Roman Senate, Paulinus was a blemish on their reputations. He was held in such high regard by his troops after the quelling of the revolt that the senators couldn't dismiss him from his posts, but they also knew when the time was right they needed to remove him from office. The political move would be to put a more conciliatory leader in control, to help Britain flourish as a trading partner, and to prevent angst from the Britons against the Roman occupiers. After a bit of a cooling down period, Suetonius was transferred out of Britain and back to continental Europe. Politically, he was pretty much removed from the limelight and laid low for a number of years while he wrote his memoirs. It wasn't until 66 AD that he again took a strategic position as consul, which was a position as advisor and military leader to the Roman Senate. In 69 AD, he was brought into a Roman civil war and sided with Otho against the other Roman forces under Vitellius. Unfortunately for Suetonius, his forces did not do as well fighting against other disciplined Roman legions compared to the unorganized mass of enemy combatants as he had encountered in Britain. Otho and Suetonius lost the civil war, and Suetonius had to make peace with the victor Vitellius. After this, his days in the spotlight gaining any type of political power were over. Three large Roman cities have been decimated during the war. But once the fighting stopped, reconstruction began. This is where the excellent geographic location of Londinium, which would later become London, started to eke out an advantage over the previous capital of Camulodunum. Since Londinium was a trading center and also had great access to the sea to bring in materials, administrators, and troop reinforcements, the political power shifted to this city, and it was later named the Roman capital. Although Camulodunum, which is known today as Colchester, lost its stance as the capital during the Roman occupation, it was still slowly rebuilt and once again turned into a thriving city. The one place it didn't fare as well 
was Verulamia. If you remember from earlier, this town was primarily comprised of Britons who had tried to take in the more urban, Roman-style way of life. Most of the buildings have been the local style rather than the more durable Roman construction. After the city was ransacked and most of the buildings destroyed, the locals didn't see it as a priority to try and rebuild the city back to its former glory. It ended up taking about 20 years before the area once again became a successful town. From the unsuccessful rebellion in 60 to 61 AD, the Romans would retain control of parts of Britain until their withdrawal between 388 to 400 AD. As we discussed, the rebellion did have long-term effects on what would later become the country of England. It is interesting to note that the legend of Boudicca seems to have grown over time to the point where her character has now become a symbol that is larger than her life. Many different groups have lashed onto the image that Boudicca represented as a type of mascot for their cause. But what if the Roman historians Tacitus and Dio never recorded the details of her campaign? What if British playwrights didn't bring her story back to life a millennium later? Instead of the story of Boudicca, which has become widespread as the story of a powerful woman from ancient times that took on her oppressors, what would we have today? Although the story has a sad ending, the idea behind Boudicca's revolt and standing up to oppression can still be felt by people in the modern world. Hearing the brutal beginning of the story where a recently widowed queen, for no worthwhile reason, is tied to a post and beaten in front of her people and her daughters dragged out and raped by soldiers strikes a nerve with many listeners. Didn't the injustice of that get you fired up? Wouldn't you want revenge for someone that suffered such wrongdoing? This story is similar to the revenge stories in movies such as Kill Bill, Gladiator, and John Wick. You feel compassion for the individual that experienced a great trauma, and you want that person to get their revenge, whether it is morally right or wrong. The difference is that the story of Boudicca was based on historical events. This wasn't a manufactured trauma. It was real people experiencing immense suffering. Now that Boudicca has been used in marketing campaigns, was the symbol of a British woman's suffrage movement, was depicted on official coins, was referenced in regards to English royalty and even featured in modern video games, music, and movies, her story will be able to live on forever. I hope hearing our tale of Boudicca gave you additional insight into this legendary historical figure and how the events of her life affected the world around her in profound ways. If you enjoyed listening to the series, please help out the show by heading over to sparkhistory.com forward slash support and provide a small contribution to help us maintain the show and keep making additional content for your listening pleasure. If you're feeling a little less ambitious, you can still help out by submitting a written review of our content on your podcast directory. 
If you want to check out our other content, head over to our website, sparkhistory.com, where you can see all of our other episodes and additional features. I myself am going to put on the track from Enya called Boadicea, sit back, relax, and listen to the soothing Celtic melody. Thank you everyone for listening. This is the Spark History Show, and that's a wrap. Have a great day.